Hi, friends, and welcome to another Robcast. This is part four of the series I'm doing on learning to lament. And this one, this part four is called As Deep as the Sea. And uh, what I want to show you is something that happens um, over the course of the first two poems. This book of Lamentations, which we're working through, is five poems. And there's this thing that happens when the woman first speaks. There's a narrator, there's a woman, then there's a third character who hasn't appeared yet. So right now it's just the narrator and the, and the woman. And in episode three, we sort of walked through how it takes the woman a while to find her voice. Essentially, she's in shock. And uh, sometimes when you're lamenting, when you're in pain, when you're suffering loss, heartache, uh, you don't have words because you're in shock. Sometimes you're in shock for a long, long, long time. Um, but what's really interesting to me is what the woman says. She's the personification of the city. The city has been destroyed. And the narrator just starts in on how vast and complete and total the destruction is. And then the woman finally speaks at the end of verse 9. She finally musters up enough energy to actually uh, speak. And she says, look, Lord, on my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. Then uh, the narrator picks up again in verse 10. Then at the end of verse 11, the woman speaks again. And she says, look, Lord, and consider, for I am despised. Then she turns to the people around her, verse 12. Is it, anything, is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look around and see. And then um, once she really gets rolling, um, verse 18, she speaks again the third time. Look, all you people, look on my suffering. Verse 20, see how distressed I am. Now, the reason why I find this so interesting is have you ever been wronged or have you ever been in excruciating pain and uh, you're talking to a friend or you're calling people to tell them what's happened and you're telling them what you're going through and you're giving them a blow-by-blow -blow account and then that friend or the person around you, they start offering solutions. Have you ever had this happen? They, they get really practical and they're like, okay, here's what you need to do. And oddly enough, you get annoyed. It's like they're just trying to help because you brought them this pain or agony or this problem or this injustice, uh, you brought it to them. And so they try to fix it and they're just trying to help. And yet you get annoyed. Have you ever had that? The person's going on and on. Then you got to call this person. Then you got to Google and you're, you're the one with the problem and they're trying to help you fix it. And yet something within you just wants them to shut up. Anybody ever had that experience? But then someone doesn't offer you solutions. They don't try to fix it. Uh, you're in pain, you're disoriented, you're overwhelmed. And instead of trying to give you the steps and techniques to actually fix it, they say something like, wow, that must be painful. And it's like suddenly this space opens up within you and you relax and then you realize that's actually what you were looking for. You were looking you weren't looking for answers. You were looking for someone to notice and someone to acknowledge what you're going through. 
And so what I find so fascinating is the woman, she says, look, look, see. Does anybody see? See, look, look. It's over and over again. When she speaks, she doesn't ask for solutions and she doesn't ask for steps to fix it. She just wants somebody to see. And that's what we want when we suffer. We want someone to witness to our pain. So sometimes we've, there's an injustice, um, and we want someone to say, that's not right, because every bone within us, every cell within us is screaming, this is not right. Have you ever had that? Somebody cheated you, somebody um, took advantage of you, somebody manipulated you, somebody has abused or used their power inappropriately over you or their strength, and there is an injustice and what you're longing for, you want justice to be served. You want the person to have to pay the price for whatever it is. But also, you just want someone to say, that's not right. Um, be, before anything else, sometimes. Other times, it's an illness. And you just want someone to witness to your pain. Wow, I can't imagine how difficult this must be for you. I remember uh, when I was in college, I got my viral meningitis, which is when the fluid around your brain gets infected and it squeezed the, the, your brain against the walls of your skull. Um, and it's, it is pain. You, you just feel like you're going to die. Um, and I remember years later meeting somebody and somehow that came up and they had had viral, meninge viral meningitis. And I remember this woman, she said to me, Oh, you just feel like you're going to die. And it was like, oh, it was like years later. And it meant so much for somebody else. Because that sounds so dramatic and over the top. There are people who actually have problems, um, who actually are, their lives are being threatened. So you're just a college kid with viral meningitis. What's the deal? But you at that time, oh my word, it feels like you're going to die. Um, and when somebody said that to me, oh yeah, I have that. It feels like you're going to die. Oh man, I'm not alone. See, there is the inner battle of pain and loss and suffering and heartache. Here's what I mean by the inner battle. There's this thing that happens in your mind, uh, this disorientation that happens when you suffer because things used to work a certain way, um, but now this person has hurt you or your body has failed you or the economy has changed, or someone somewhere in an office decided that your project or job or office isn't needed anymore, or people that you thought would show up don't show up. And so there's this disorientation, but lurking within the pain and loss, uh, up and down aren't what they used to be. Left and right aren't working like they always have. So there's the wound, there's the change, there's the loss, there's the betrayal, there's the diagnosis, whatever. But then there's this other thing stacked on top of it. There's your inner dialogue that wonders if this is what it appears to be. Is this, is this madness or is it me? Uh, have you ever described something that you were going through um, or, somebody, or something someone said to you or something someone did to you and you asked your friend, is that crazy? And they say... Yes, that's crazy because there's a thing that's happening and then there's your inner dialogue about it. You're wondering, do other people think this is crazy? Am, am I overreacting or is this as bad and painful and traumatic 
as it feels to me. There's the thing, and then there's your running commentary on the thing. And in those moments, like the woman, what we need is someone to look, someone to see, someone to notice, someone to witness to our pain. And when someone does notice, when someone does see, uh, what they're doing is they're helping you find your way out of the disorientation. They're giving you reference points when some of the usual reference points aren't there. Like if it's someone that you trusted and they've hurt you, someone you trust is a reference point. It can be like an anchor, a light, a sign. Um, they're one of the ways that you navigate the world. But if that person breaks trust, then the reference point isn't there like it used to, and you now no longer have one of the ways that you used to navigate. Or uh, maybe you have an injury or an illness or a diagnosis of something, and before your body could be relied upon, you trusted your body to deliver, to, to work, to function, and now uh, it doesn't like it used to. These all produce tremendous disorientation. And when somebody says to you, I can't imagine how difficult that must be, what they're doing is they're helping give you reference points at the moment you need it most. So the woman keeps asking, look, look, look. At first, her appeal is to the divine. Look, God, look, Lord, look. Then to the people around her, do any of you see this? Uh, and what the narrator does is the narrator keeps narrating. The narrator just keeps reporting, here's what's happened. The narrator just comes up with image after image to name and articulate the destruction. But then everything shifts. And in verse 13, the narrator of chapter two, the narrator addresses the woman. So before the narrator is just, this is what's happened. This is what's gone down. This is how vast and total the destruction is. She's been hauled away. She's a widow. She's an orphan. She's a slave. It's like a newscaster who just tells you how bad it is. But then verse 13, all of a sudden the narrator turns essentially and speaks to the woman. What can I say for you? With what can I compare you, daughter Jerusalem? To what can I liken you that I may comfort you, virgin daughter Zion? Your wound is as deep as the sea. Who can heal you? Oh, come on, peoples. Uh, he can't stay the objective passive observer anymore. This is what happened to Jerusalem. This is how bad it is. She's gone down. She has fallen from the heights. And at some point, the narrator melts. The narrator's heart is broken. I know this guy who was, uh, I used to work with him. He was this lovely, lovely fella. And he uh, was a TV producer for local TV. I remember him telling me that one of his jobs was late afternoon, early evening, he had to put together those little short commercials that would run through the evening TV shows 
to try and get you to stay and watch the, the 10 o'clock or the 11 o'clock news. By the way, I'm like describing an old world. Can we all agree to that? Like people still watch the news at night. Um, but he said his job was to find the most sensational, shocking, scandalous thing. And then he'd make like that 15 second, 10 second this evening at 11 o'clock, find out why every single grocery store is selling you cyanide in the apples. Or, you know, that, those sort of things that are so like, ah, um, and uh, none of your credit cards are safe. None of your children are safe. News at 11. Um, and so he said one night he's, uh, and he said he, his job was to find the most dramatic stuff, the most shocking, dramatic footage to splice together so that people would not tune out, but at the end of the evening TV shows, they would stay around for the news. And he said, uh, one night there's a house fire and he has the footage from the news truck of the house fire and he's splicing together the house fire and the owner of the house is out in front of the house as it's burning and they literally got her on camera as her home is burning. And he says to me, now, the, the woman who owned the house, he says, was my sister. He says, I'm literally splicing together footage of my sister standing in front of her house as it burns down. He's like, at that moment, I knew it's time to get another job. I cannot report this as an objective third. I can't splice this together. And essentially what happens in this poem is the narrator he can't bear the pain any longer. And he says to her, what can I say for you? What can I liken you that I may comfort you? Virgin daughter Zion. By the way, next episode, we're going to talk about why does he call her virgin daughter Zion? Oh my word. Wait till you see that. Next episode. Nevertheless, this episode. And then he says, your wound as, is as deep as the sea. I actually think, uh, I was actually going to call this whole series As Deep as the Sea, and then the subtitle would be Learning to Lament in a Culture of Denial, and then it would be like part one, part two, but that's too long of a title. Um, but uh, yeah, how great is that line, as deep as the sea. Now, here's why I think that's really interesting. If you go back and you look at the thing that she says after the third time she says, look, what she says is, is any suffering like my suffering that was inflicted on me? Is any suffering like my suffering? See, when you're going through it, oh my goodness, it's the worst ever, right? Have you ever had somebody say something like, oh, that's nothing, my, oh yeah, you're having, yeah, my uncle Phil, he, have you ever had someone do that thing where they like try to minimize your thing? Well, at least you didn't lose both fingers or whatever. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Have you ever had somebody try to minimize it and it didn't help? They were trying to be like, oh, it's not that bad. And you, you were like, no, this is me. This is my life. It's easy for you to say that. It's not your life. Um, I've noticed this uh, in the past um, when I've been criticized for my work. And uh, I'll have like a phrase knocking around in my head um, and I'll share it with a friend and they'll laugh. They'll be like, that is funny. That is like classic. Uh, I can't believe that. That is, that is totally ridiculous. And I'll be like, oh, it's, nice. it's easy to laugh. It was said about you. I laugh way more now than I used to. But I, there's many times in the past when I'd be like, yeah, of course you can laugh at that. It's, it wasn't said about 
you. And so the woman essentially is saying, is there any pain like I pay, my pain? Um, is there any suffering like my suffering? And uh, no, there isn't. There isn't because it's you and it's your life and you're unique and your circumstances are unique. And it may be less or more. It may be varying gradients. It may be nothing. It, may, it might be rich white people problems compared to actual problems. You know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, nevertheless, it's you. And it's your life. And uh, lots of people have suffered in this exact way. And yet no one has suffered in this exact way. And so at the heart of your pain is essentially a non-dual awareness. You hold two things that are true at the same time. This is totally unique in the history of the world, and there's nothing remotely unique and special about this. Millions and millions of people have gone through this same thing. It is both at the same time. And essentially, you're bouncing back and forth between these two impulses. There is no pain like this pain, and... Um, millions of people have had this exact same pain. And that's, that's a, a paradox at the heart of suffering, loss, heartache, and pain. Um, but the, the narrator can't stay impassive and objective any longer, and he joins her. And you know what he does? He looks and he sees. Uh, my friend Peter Rollins, who I'm going to have lunch with after I record, uh, this podcast, he said this, um, he said, contrary to what people think, the key to easing people's suffering is not in offering some insidious theodicy. <laughs> How great is that phrase, insidious theodicy? By the way, that's simply when somebody tries to explain suffering with complicated God ideas. Have you ever, ha have you ever had that when someone's like, well, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's all part of a plan and you're like, plan this, you know what I mean? Or somebody's like, you know, God's just going to work. You're like, I don't need that, right? Keep your God out of this. And he says, contrary to what people think, the key to easing people's suffering is not in offering some insidious theodicy, something like, you know, uh, the universe wants you to suffer like this, or God did this to you. Awful. I'm going to read it again because it's so awesome. Um, contrary to what people often think, the key to easing people's suffering is not in offering some insidious theodicy, but in allowing a place for people to mourn and to meet others who know what it is to have been burned by that black sun. Come on, Pete Rollins. How good is that? The key is to allow a place for people to mourn and to meet others who know what it is to have been burned by that black sun. This is not about providing an answer, he goes on, but rather offering a site where we can speak our suffering. This may seem a little depressing, but spa such spaces are really sites of liberation and light. Oh, so good. Uh, this is not about providing an answer, he says, but offering a site where we can speak our suffering. This may seem a little depressing, but such places are really sites of liberation and light. Uh, do you love that phrase he uses, uh, sites of liberation and light? Um, he talks about allowing a place. Uh, and then that line, he, 
uh, burned by that black sun. Uh, how good is that? And so often what happens, and I, I, I have done this so many times, I'm going through something painful and I call somebody and, they, and I realize now they don't give me what I want because they're like, what, I, what I, I realize now by the third person I called, what I was, I was just, I'm essentially calling around trying to find somebody who will say, oh my word, that is awful. And when you get somebody who's like, well, and well-meaning, it's always well-meaning. Well, here's what you need to do. Ah, I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. And maybe that's you. Maybe that's you. Uh, you're, not, you're, not at the, you're not at seven steps and three techniques and two skills and book recommendations. Maybe you're not there. Maybe you're in shock. Maybe you're at the place where you just need somebody to listen and then say, I see, I witness, I notice. And that's where you are. That's where you are. So a, a couple of very practical things. Um, I want to talk about uh, kids, marriage, friends, and white privilege. How about that? Um, so let's go in reverse order. Let's talk about white privilege. Uh, my, one of my main mentors when I first started preaching was the legendary African-American preacher, the right Reverend William Pinnell, who taught me so much. Uh, I remember one time, it was almost like an offhanded comment. He was getting ready to meet with a group of white pastors. And he and I were tight. Uh, and I remember he, we would have these fantastic conversations because I, I mean, this man was just so full of wisdom. But I remember one time, it was almost like an offhanded comment. And he said something like, you know, Rob, some of these folks act like nothing's ever happened in our past. That was all he said. And then he moved on to whatever he was talking about. Some of these folks act like nothing's ever happened in our past. Uh, and it's, it's interesting when you think about how often what you wanted before anything else is you just needed somebody to see how wrong it was, how painful it was, how unjust it was, how surprising it was, how cruel it was. That oftentimes... Knowing that somebody else sees injects your situation with so much hope and life. Just that. Uh, that maybe, and, and often for so many of us, the world is so complicated. There are so many problems. We have such a, a, a propensity when faced with anxiety and pain to roll up our sleeves and get to work. Let's fix this thing. Um, but in this poem, what's so interesting to me is, is she just keeps saying, look, look, look. And the narrator says, basically, I see. Oh, and she's like, is any wound like my wound? And he essentially says, your wound is as deep as the sea. Whew, man, how have you gotten this far? Because it essentially reorients you. Otherwise, you think you're crazy. Uh, how many people do I know who have been in marriages where the other, where there is complete insanity going on in the marriage and the person's like, is this crazy? My partner does this. And what they're essentially saying is, could you, could somebody notice? Because otherwise you feel like you're going crazy. Uh, and I wonder at, at some massive level uh, in our culture, not enough people have said, have noticed 
and have seen. And uh, obviously it all starts with all of us as individuals, but there are moments perhaps when we just say, how difficult is that? I can't imagine what you've been through. And maybe then we now have created space as Pete uh, Rollins talks about where we can actually begin some healing. Uh, oh, now then as a friend then, uh, how this has helped me is to remember to listen to what the person is saying and to try and witness to the pain first. That must be tough. Um, you're essentially listening to the pain behind the pain. Uh, I can't imagine how difficult that is. And uh, I've, I've noticed now I listen differently because I'm listening for the thing they're really saying. Because sometimes we do just want help. Could somebody please show me what website to go to? Could somebody please just show me where I can, what to do next? But other times, it's, it's, it's like at the level of spirit, you're trying to discern, do they need solutions? Or are they asking for solidarity? Are they essentially saying, look, look, will somebody look, will somebody see, is any pain like my pain? And what they need is somebody just to say, oh man, your wound is as deep as the sea. And that's where we start. Uh, I, and, and then to think about marriage, or, or uh, if you have a life partner, uh, this has been revolutionary for me. Um, one of my jobs is to witness to my partner's life. Uh, think about, uh, make that almost like a, you can make that like a mantra, just witness to it, just name it, just acknowledge it, just see it. Um, because sometimes what happens is the they start sharing their problem and your instant impulse is like, well, just do this. And they look at you like, what do you think, I'm an idiot? If it was that obvious, I would just do it. They're asking for something else. They're asking, they're asking for you to hear. And I know the dudes out there, you know, you have heard this before when you were told, I just want you to listen. Um, hold off on the solutions. Stop trying to solve it. Just sit with me in it. Just enter into the tension and anxiety and pain with me. I don't need you to get out your toolbox, your kit, your solutions, your clever techniques. I need you to sit with me in it. Uh, revolutionary, my friends, I'm telling you. And then uh, with kids, this section of Lamentations has been so helpful for me to realize sometimes what your kids are asking for, they just want you to look. They just want you to see. Um, they just want you to witness to their trauma. Wow, that must have been really difficult when so-and-so said that. Wow, that must have been overwhelming to have studied that hard and you didn't get a good grade. That must have been so frustrating. You must have just wanted to give up. Um, that before we charge in with all that parental, come on, you can do this, fix it, let's do this. Here's what we'll do next time. Maybe sometimes what they're really asking for is that you would simply witness to their experience. Yes, my friends, as deep as the sea, this has been part four of learning to lament. Now, uh, 
what's really interesting to me, which we're going to get into in the next episode, is when the man, when the narrator finally says, what can I say for you? What can I compare you? What he calls her is he says, to what can I liken you that I may comfort you, virgin daughter Zion? Why does he refer to her as virgin daughter Zion? And what's it referring to earlier in the poem? That will be part five, my friends, grace and peace.